Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. I am Richard Kutcher and alongside me is Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, we're on the final stretch. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, and uh, I'm raring to go for, for our, for our two-parter special. Yeah, we're really on to the sharp end of the business for all involved when it comes to DNO claims. And that is going to be litigation, a really fascinating 20 minutes or so coming up. But we will also mention now that this that there will be a second installment of this episode because, to be honest, we couldn't quite shut them up because yeah, they, they were on a roll. Going on. We thought we'd just, just have a bit more of a kind of fireside chat, which which was fantastic. But yeah, felt it was probably best to just chop it up into two to make it a bit more digestible digestible exactly so Owen talk us through who our guests are then and and how we're going to tackle this topic of litigation so yes litigation we're here to talk about um, litigation so in the first part of this episode we're going to talk about some more established risks that can lead to litigation like anti-competitive behavior but also some of the emerging risks that we now see coming out of the modern world like mass remote working social media ESG and we talk about mitigating against the risk of litigation arising out of some of those things with some with some real life examples in the second part of this episode we talk about the litigation itself so what are the challenges the pitfalls common mistakes you see how do you address them we then talk about the process and theory behind how you develop and then execute a strategy uh, for resolution be that either going to trial and, and uh, by adjudication or by a negotiated uh, resolution. So I would describe that kind of as a, as a smorgasbord mm. of topics. But our guests are Ron Rossi and Ed Filiush from the law firm Kasowitz Benson Torres. So we've got loads of admiration for them and how about they... Uh, We've got loads of admiration for them and how they go about their business um, as litigators. We've got some incredible parables from Ron, uh, which will stay with me forever, but they are, they're brilliant. He's just a great storyteller. All good trial lawyers are, and the way he tells them, you know, visualizes the story. So it's a great way to sort of impart knowledge and, and his learnings. Yeah, completely agree with all of that. Really, really entertaining and informative episodes coming up important to mention that we did originally record this in january 2022 so almost four months ago now or five months from release a lot has happened and changed in the world since then of course not just geopolitically but in the insurance and uh, insurance market and the litigation activities as well and also featuring in this two-parter is ul brightman director at rising edge providing some additional insights from the underwriter's perspective you should hear ul throughout the two episodes but first Ron begins by explaining some of the techniques or strategies to avoid ending up in litigation in the first place I've had to train myself because for us you know for Ed and I as litigators we are used to operating in a highly discordant space Mm -hmm. meaning that for most people Litigation means that all of the forms of human endeavoring to solve the problem, short of taking an axe or a club and going out to the streets to resolve your dispute, have failed. And now you're in litigation. And so for us, that's where we start to get involved. But for most people, 
you're dealing with a situation or a problem that has now escalated to the point where all normal ways of trying to resolve a dispute have seemingly failed. And so that's when we kind of step into the breach. And we're always cognizant of that, even with sophisticated clients, because litigations can often be deeply personal, especially if fraud is alleged in a company's dealings or if a tremendous amount of money is at stake or, frankly, if the life of the business is at stake. And so usually we are stepping into a situation that is fraught with a lot of emotion and discord and worry. Mm -hmm. And it's really critical to make sure that those emotions and worries and the discord that's inherent in litigation don't get in the way of rational problem solving. Mm -hmm. You're in the business of of, uh, problem solving, essentially, I guess, and as litigators, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think one thing, you know, to, to Ron's point about when litigators first get involved, it's kind of after the horse is out of the barn there. I think one of the things, if we're looking at a risk mitigation perspective, is if you can, at the outset, you know, when someone's entering into a new joint venture or a new contract with someone, everybody's in a good mood and rosy and is thinking about all the good things that's gonna ha- that are going to happen from whatever this is, but a lot of times they're not thinking about what are the pitfalls in this type of relationship. And so to the extent that you're looking to mitigate that risk going forward, coming to a litigator or asking a litigator's perspective earlier for like, what are the types of things that can go wrong in a relationship like this? And obviously you can't foresee everything, but that can really help to write that into the contract up front uh, or whatever business dealing that you're doing. Because oftentimes corporate lawyers and, and uh, M&A dealers and, and the like are looking to just you know, get to the finish line and everybody wants a deal to get done and no one's thinking about the rainy day until it actually starts raining. We feel very strongly about that. That's a good idea, what you just described there, Ed. How, how often do you actually get asked to go in at that earlier stage? Because like you say, everyone is focused on getting the deal done, getting it signed. Typically, we're involved after the fact. Yeah. And so, not to overstate it, but to the extent that damage has been done or a mitigating event could have happened, that ship has long since sailed by the time we get involved. There are instances, however, in situations where we do get involved before the fact. And Mm -hmm. so, right now, I'm involved with one of my law partners advising on a fairly regular basis the board of directors of a publicly traded company. And I, I've noticed through through that ongoing representation, which has gone on for, for more than a year now, that we've had a chance in a number of instances to make sort of preemptive interventions that I think have probably helped mitigate the future downside risk of courses of action that the business was going to take. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's been the difference between having their, you know, their regular corporate counsel who are helping them prepare their filings and yeah. stuff letting us take a fresh set of eyes at certain things that are are considered you know nettlesome in advance we've had this situation with the business do we need to disclose how do we disclose mm-hmm. should we be concerned about this and i think getting a litigator's perspective on those kinds of issues can be very beneficial so it's sort of like you know, a, 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 an ounce of prevention provides many pounds of cure. Mm-hmm. We see that quite often where effectively the companies just use the, the, the corporate lawyer to look at their disclosures and to draft them, and they haven't necessarily been looked at through the prism of litigation. They've not really thought, well, hang on, we've seen this specific kind of boilerplate kind of disclosure go wrong uh, in, in the event of um, either a merger or some kind of acquisition or, or some kind of event that happens. So actually having a litigator look at those before the filing um, and through the prism of litigation, I think probably beneficial. 
Yeah, I mean, and typically what's been happening is, you know, in, in, in good corporate governance, obviously you're going to have corporate counsel, and, and your corporate counsel are going to have and should have a great sense of sort of the, the history of your filings and where you were and where you're going and making sure that you're being consistent in your messaging to the marketplace. And you may also have a layer where they have, you know, oftentimes there's sort of a, a, a PR representative who, and, and, and he or she may not be a lawyer, but they're getting called in to say, well, from a public relations standpoint, is this going to cause the media to respond or things of that nature? But also in certain instances, and, and companies sort of intuitively knows what those instances are, where they're worried about their disclosure, or it's not boilerplate, or it's something that's a little bit outside the norm, very smart to rely, I think, on someone who knows litigation mm -hmm. to take a look at the language and say, you know what, you don't need to get too far out of, you know, over your skis on this, or maybe we could scale this back a little bit, or do you really want to be saying it that way? Why don't you try to say it this way? Mm -hmm. and, and I think a very sort of like, gold standard level of corporate governance if you're, if you're doing it that way. Yeah. Probably particularly relevant to some of the ESG concerns where companies may kind of be aspirational in some of their disclosures around, you know, that it, rather than being really honest about exactly where they are right now, they could be a little aspirational kind of greenwashing to a degree. So just making sure that companies just don't overreach with respect to what they're saying about their company's position. Yeah, that's a great example. So we have another publicly traded company that we advise and they have an ESG consultant and so they're heavily focused on ESG, and their ESG consultant is pushing them to make sure that their ESG efforts are prominently mentioned in their, uh, in, in their marketing materials and in their disclosures. They're doing that because they're trying to create shareholder interest mm -hmm. in, in, in that particular company as an asset. But that is often at odds with what risk is because that consultant is going to push to the fullest extent they can to really sort of like enhance and maybe even get into hyperbole with respect to what's happening ESG-wise. And ESG is now such a focus of potential risk mm -hmm. that you really want to make sure that you're tempering anything you're saying about ESG with with a litigator's perspective or at least someone's perspective who isn't coming at it from a pure, hey, what's going to make shareholders or potential shareholders want to purchase our shares? That, that's great and it's important to market yourself through your ESG efforts and it's important to have ESG efforts, but at the end of the day, there's that dynamic tension because your consultant may not even be thinking about risk. They're really thinking about how do I get more people to want to buy the stock? Yeah. And I think that's true, not just in an ESG space, but really anywhere that you're looking at a popular zeitgeist topic of that moment that mm -hmm. a company and the consultants and everyone is going to be a cheerleader for saying and doing the most on a particular issue. Where you're most enthusiastic about something good that you're doing is, I think, inversely where you should have the most pause before you actually say something because that's where it's going to be hardest uh, from a risk manager perspective to be the one who raises their hand and say well you know not to be the wet blanket or the Debbie Downer here but we should take a pause and maybe say a little less because let's you know under promise and over deliver a little bit but that doesn't make you the most popular person in a boardroom to do that. I also think in terms of like how, how can a litigator help eliminate or manage risk before the fact. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm the CEO of a company 
and my company is selling widgets, and my widgets can only compete on price mm -hmm. because everyone's widgets in the market are essentially the same, I should be very worried about risk because now you're going to start having overwhelming pressure in a highly competitive market mm -hmm. to collude with your competitors. Because if you keep constantly undercutting price, at a certain point, your margins are going to get so thin that it's going to be very difficult to profitably run your business. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, in, if I'm in a business where I'm selling something that's arguably fungible, and the only way that I can compete is on price or maybe quality of delivery, I should be worried. I should be constantly worried about risk because my salespeople are going to be out there in a ferociously competitive environment where regulators are lurking in the shadows and are going to want a police conduct that mm -hmm. human nature suggests would be very important. I've seen this over the years in certain situations where you have a, a foreign company who is operating substantially in the United States. The norms of business in that country might be such that, hey, like it's perfectly appropriate to get together with your competitors with a wink and a nod and say, hey, we'll agree that we hold this customer and you'll kind of agree that you, know, you hold that customer and we'll kind of lay off on competing with each other. And I've literally had shocked or you know, maybe they're feigning shock, but, but, yeah. but, but, but shocked executives when we explain to them that under the U.S. laws, that conduct is not only going to create civil liability, but it could create criminal liability for you. And so it seems almost like silly or an extreme example, but I've, I've literally seen it happen a number of times. Yeah. So if you're in an industry where you are competing on price only or where there is tremendous pressure to create market share mm -hmm. or where there is significant vertical inter integration in your supply chain, these are all automatically paradigms that are inherently risky. Mm -hmm. and, and you want to make sure you have good compliance programs in place and that you're just constantly thinking about, are we competing fairly and properly in the marketplace? And, and one thing, uh, in addition to just competing in the customer, I think one thing that we'll see more and more of, especially with um, the empowerment of workers that we've seen over the course of the last few years, is that there is such competition for folks that as salaries you know, continue to rise and workers have more power, I think there's going to be great pressure on companies to say, somebody has to stop this war for talent and, and, and not at the, at the end where there's really differentiation between workers. But if you're looking for a job that kind of more and more people could do, the, where the only competition is on wage and anybody could get in there, one of the things that's going to, I think, happen and the companies to be mindful of is not looking at their competitors and saying, we have to you know, cap it at you know, X dollars or pounds an hour um, because I think there'll be tremendous pressure there too uh, as margins will get thinner. So I think mm -hmm. companies need to be mindful in, in both the widget making capacity and in the widget makers uh, <laughs> to, to ensure that they're not running afoul especially with the increased regulatory pressures. Yeah, and I think of, sorry, I thought of, gener I thought of pharmaceutical generics immediately as well when you start talking about widgets, and obviously that's, that's another good example of, of price pressure um, and market share issues as well. And also, sorry, Ron, something else you did pick up on, which, which I thought was a good point, was just a lot of international companies, you've got to be compliant in like how many different jurisdictions. Yeah. So piecing together which laws apply in each country and then making sure you're compliant. I mean, there's a myriad, isn't it, of stuff to, to keep up with, so it's, it's difficult. 
Yeah, certainly. And, yeah. And, 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 and we've seen in the U.S., for example, where you may, you may think that you are fine in the U.S. with regulators in the U.S. from an antitrust standpoint, and then all of a sudden the EU is taking a very aggressive position with you based upon your operations in Europe. Or in the United Kingdom, I know like sort of the anti-fraud group has been very aggressive of late. And so it's not enough to be compliant in one jurisdiction, obviously. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of make sure that you have kind of top-down leadership where every region you're operating in understands that it needs to be compliant. Mm-hmm. And again... In certain industries, there is just overwhelming pressure that is going to create the potential for for great regulatory mayhem mm-hmm. if you start chasing profit or market share at the expense of fair competition. But one other area where we're seeing a paradigmatic shift in how we do work, at the same time that you're seeing a rise in risk associated with a class of thing is in data management and data privacy. And so if, if your data isn't secure, and more importantly, if your customer's data isn't secure or your employee's data isn't secure, you should be losing tremendous sleep over that if you're, if you're a chief operating officer or you're a chief executive. And it becomes even more difficult now because remote work has become such a new thing. Mm -hmm. And so over the last 18 months, because of the pandemic, we've seen an acceleration in not just the amount of remote work being done, but I think of the acceptance of remote work Mm -hmm. as something that's appropriate for a corporation. So going forward, I don't think remote work is going to necessarily just go away. So you're going to have more remote work. You're going to have more data in remote places. Mm-hmm. And data breaches and data privacy are huge, huge potential risks. And the world has just gotten more complicated for those yeah. sorts of things. And so, again, if you think you have a good program in place to protect your data or to make sure that you're doing all the things you need to do, wouldn't hurt to have a litigator take a look at the program mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and sort of say, well, if you get a breach because of this or your CapEx is X and mm-hmm. your, your spend on data security is just a fraction of X, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Things of that nature, I think, would be helpful. And I think with the shift to remote work and as companies get both smaller and bigger uh, and folks are not all coming into the same office, you could have people who, you traditionally, if you're a New York-based company, you could say, well, all of our stuff happens in New York, but now you've got workers who used to be coming into the office now who have moved to different states, and so you now could potentially be coming under the purview of different regulators, different systems of law. If you get into a litigation with someone who is now working out of there and you knew that they were working in California, which has a very different regulatory environment when it comes to employee rights and the like, just for example, um, where you were never concerned about that because you were just an East Coast-based company if you were New York in the tri-state area, now you've got folks all over and your exposure is very different, even state to state, uh, which Mm -hmm. is something that's kind of through the remote work has really accelerated. So I think it's a a big time to be paying attention to that and something that is kind of an unintended consequence. Um, Even a small company can get very big uh, when their folks move around. It just feels like there's just so many new or or different exposures around now. We've we've mentioned ESG, post-pandemic working conditions. Uh, It just seems to be a lower barrier to, to bringing litigation now. 
Uh, and then you kind of add to that the fact that we've just had you know bull market in the US kind of led maybe to depressed litigation rates. But now it's coming away and it's deteriorating. And I just feel probably likely to be a big bounce in litigation rates in the next couple of years. Some merger objections haven't gone away. They're just not necessarily brought in federal court um, as class actions. So how do you feel about, about the kind of litigious environment, litigation environment over the next year or two? Yeah, I think, I think on a macro level, you know, and, and our firm is pretty much litigation only, so we, we try to be on top of these issues to the fullest extent we can be. We've seen really kind of litigation being somewhat counter-cyclical. So if you're in a bull market or you're in an expanding economy, most businesses are really concentrating on gaining market share, taking profit, operations, and they're willing to forego litigation because litigation can become a rate limiter to those sorts of things. It, it takes time, energy, and assets away from profit-making activities. However, in a recessionary market or a uh, economically troubled market, companies tend to be actually more inclined to litigate because, A, deals go south with a greater amount of frequency. And at the same time, you have a situation where dollars are worth fighting for. And so I think generally speaking, you could probably start to expect an uptick in litigations in economic conditions that are deteriorating, for sure. At the same time, technology makes the world accessible, but it also makes the world way more risky if you're running a business, especially a publicly traded business. What we're seeing and what we've seen are situations where, for example, a company might have gold standard public reporting in that it has the right processes in place to make sure that all of its SEC filings or other public filings are perfectly proper, have the right language in them, address the right things. And yet it has a CEO or an executive who's just a runaway train on social media. Now all of a sudden you're getting all these social media posts and the social media posts are being read by shareholders or potential shareholders, and they're actionable, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So now you have a whole class of communication where the, the CEO or the founder or the senior executive can bring the message directly mm-hmm. to potential shareholders who could be injured by that message mm-hmm. completely outside of the context of how you manage your messaging in all other respects even if you're managing your messaging to a gold standard. And so, again, you have to be constantly vigilant about these things Mm -hmm. because the manner in which you can get hurt by your public statements is ever-increasing just because there's just more channels to get your message out there, some of which are completely unregulated by your processes. Did you see, um, I I just think I saw it on Monday, but Volkswagen had another securities class action claim filed this week, and it was to do with... An April's Fool's Day joke about yeah, being called Volkswagen. Volkswagen. They changed their name and, and it was um, a joke. I just thought, again, another good example about, like you talk about Ron there, with all these processes in place around your disclosures and doing it right. But remember, basically, anything else you say is, is still like, like it could be advertising or it could be a joke, it could be a tweet. Someone will use that to allege securities fraud against you. So, like, you have to be careful about those kind of statements too. In the US, 
especially during the pandemic, you had these so-called Robin Hood investors. Mm -hmm. So it's some guy or gal sitting around in their pajamas all day long. And when they take a break from the 17th hour of Fortnite they've been playing, <laughs> they decide to day trade. Right. And they're not day trading based on any metric. They're day trading based on what they're reading in social media about mm -hmm. the company in many instances. Right. Yeah. And if the social media is bombastic hyperbole from a charismatic founder or some other person, even if it's been on the internet for years, mm -hmm. all of a sudden that is the buy-sell decision. Mm -hmm. And that creates risk. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a new channel of risk, certainly new in the sense that, look, years ago we didn't have social media. Yeah. But even now it seems just that social media is sort of like this explosive thing that be, has now become the primary source that many people use to get their news, at least yeah. in the United States. I think it's kind of democratizing for, for uh, capital markets. It, it allows retail investors access and to kind of come together and, and create that power against some of the more institutional buyers and, and, and funds, etc. So I don't think necessarily it's a bad thing. Sometimes there's no collusion, of course, although you could argue actually with a fund there's collusion there, you know, in any case. So, but, but I found that whole Robin Hood thing really interesting and, and there was a lot of negativity around it but I felt that it's you know, there is a positive element to it and that it democratizes investment. I say absolutely. Like yeah. if you look at GameStop, right. GameStop has been really fun to just watch in the United yeah. States because you have these so-called institutions who usually have all of the advantages in That's terms right. of kind of like, you know, right. and, and so they have these short positions and yeah. now you have the little guys kind of taking collective uh -huh. action through social media to absolutely crush the short. The interesting thing <laughs> the from a litigation risk perspective is when you when you have this kind of paradigmatic shift, you have not just kind of GameStop and the ones that yeah. seem to happen more organically, but then companies look at that and say, wow, instead of having to go out and get our pitch book and do our funding by going to all of these private equity or VC funds or the like, we can raise money or we can get our stock price up by going straight to the people. And that's uh -huh. now a new way to, to do that. So that's good. But again, to Ron's point about how you can, you know, the tweets now drive a direct into the stock price. Yeah. As a risk management perspective, you need to be thinking about that because other companies are going to see mm -hmm. just, wow, this is a great opportunity to raise capital or to do this a lot more easily and not have to pay uh, M&A or bankers yeah. or advisors, you know, X percentage of the, your capital raise. We can go get this ourselves. Mm -hmm. But now you need to be really careful into what you're saying to investors, how that's going to be perceived in the market, because not everything is going to be a feel-good story yeah. or continue to run up. It, it's really fraught with peril yeah. um, and that kind of litigation risk and then what do we do when you know we're, we're dealing with more people and perhaps you know that that are more protected in the United States as kind of not sophisticated right. and accredited investors who understand everyone's doing this kind of angel investing Series A level without understanding that that's a the best managers in the world are going to hit on one out of ten of those. Uh, everybody expects to hit on one out of one uh, when you're talking about those more retail investors, mm -hmm. and that's going to lead to significant litigation risk when mm -hmm. the music stops and the bull market run mm -hmm. isn't there. You I, see I the plaintiff firms running around trying to put those guys together into classes? I, I don't think yet, because I think the music hasn't stopped, right. uh, because there's still another one that everybody's just going to be chasing the next, but right. I think we're getting really close yeah. to that not being the you case. Just that when the markets drop is when that starts to happen, yes. and you start. To get I think, I think in the same way that we're all on the sidelines, or not all of us, but some of us are on the sidelines, sort of cheering for the little guy as they take collective action against the institutions. With you know, and GameStop is a good example. You should, you know, you can rest assured that 
the regulators and the criminal authorities in all jurisdictions are also going to be on the side of those investors when they get hurt because it's sort of the side of angels. And so if you have an executive or you have a founder who feels the need or just is a charismatic presence or just wants to be on Twitter or wants to be on social media and he or she is communicating with those with those so-called, you know, little guys, it's just fraught with danger because if you hurt them, they're exactly the kinds of investors who the regulators really probably feel it's their mandate to protect. Mm-hmm. And so it is a, it's just risky to communicate with them, even if it's purposeful and yeah. otherwise useful. So thank you to Ron and Ed for a very informative first half of our discussion on litigation with regards to a DNO claim. Owen, loads just in that first half alone, but what were your key takeaways from it? Yes, um, three or four takeaways there. First one, getting a litigator involved in a deal at an earlier stage. Different perspective to the people trying to get to the finishing line. And you kind of need those people thinking about what happens on the rainy day, as Ed described, and litigators bring that perspective. Or just um, some of the points they were talking about with regard to disclosures, something that you're concerned about, something out of the norm, not boilerplate, very sensible maybe to get a litigator to look at it. So that's that's another theme that's come up. Secondly, interesting point Ed made, kind of related to greenwashing. And it's just a gen- general point. Where, you, where The point he made was where you're most enthusiastic about something good that you're doing is actually inversely where you might where you should maybe have the most pause before you actually say something to your shareholders or, or the world at large about that that thing. Thirdly, some interesting discussion about post-COVID environment, more remote work going on in more remote locations, and the world just got a whole lot more complicated in this regard regarding risk management. It's got a whole lot more complicated to organise meetings as well, hasn't it? As yeah. well, I found, <laughs> is that people chopping and changing which days they're doing and all the rest of it. But yeah, data management and employer-employee relations. Ron provided some interesting commentary on new areas of risks. The point that we have this whole class of communications on social media now that are kind of outside of the normal the processes and procedures that, you, that companies have regarding public disclosures. And, and the overarching point really there was there is just more risk out there about it now because because there are just more channels to get your message out there. And that probably applies to both, both private and public companies, actually. And then finally, just on litigation trends, we know they're counter-cyclical. Recessionary market, companies might be more inclined to litigate. Deals go south more frequently. And, and as Ron said, I think the dollar's are worth fighting for. So again, something maybe feeding into the general view that we would expect to see an uptick in litigation in the kind of conditions that we're kind of expecting to see or that we are seeing now in terms of um, economies um, sort of deteriorating. Well, yeah, a whole smorgasbord indeed of, um, of, <laughs> yeah. of topics covered by the guys there. And we've got plenty more to come, as we've said. Well, I do recommend listeners tune in to part two of this episode, which will be released in two weeks' time. As ever, you can find us on any uh, podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox. There's loads of other ones out there. I don't only know one of them because I only use one of them myself. Uh, but do uh, subscribe if you're not already subscribed. Until then, Owen, take care. Take care, Richard. See you soon.